so why so why did I why do I mention global warming in Sunday school class? So that you can be informed, so you can have access to information. Okay. And if anybody thinks there's information on the other side that you want me to put out uh, a website for, I'll do that. I'm a, I'm a fair distributor of information. Okay. Let's go on to um, uh, church government. If you look at the outline from last week, definition: a church officer who is some is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. And we talked about apostle, which is an office in the early church that I don't think exists anymore. But the apostles had the authority to govern the church with absolute divine authority. And, and, um, and that was given by Jesus Christ. Uh, there were 12 apostles, plus Paul, plus Barnabas and James. So maybe 15, maybe no more. There was a difference that we talked about between Catholics and Protestants on who replaces the apostles. The Roman Catholic Church says, who replaced the apostles? To rule over the whole church worldwide with absolute authority. The Pope and under him, the cardinals and the bishops. Okay, so they have human beings replacing the apostles. Protestants have said no. Um, we disagree with that. The writings of the apostles in the word of God replace the apostles with absolute authority to rule over the church. So we are subject to the governance of the word of God, um, not an absolute human governance. <clears throat> so that was a difference. Then we talked about elders last week. Uh, the office of elder, also called in the Bible, a pastor or bishop or overseers, and many verses indicated that there are plural elders, more than one elder in New Testament churches. This is going to be important for what I say in the rest of the hour today. That is, uh, Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church, uh, in, every, in every city, every church where they had been. And um, James 5.14, written to all the churches at that time, early in the history of the church, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church. Um, and so it looks like there's an assumption that there are plural elders in every church. Um, point C, the function of elders was to govern the church, but not to rule harshly, and to have some teaching responsibilities, at least be able to teach and contradict or, or answer those who would teach false doctrine. Uh, qualifications of elders we talked about. And that brings us to the end of where we were last week. Um, and we're going to start with what is, the, what is the meaning of husband of one wife? You know what? I'm just feeling after all that clutter of announcements and the Trinity debate and the schedule and everything, I'm just going to pray one more time before we start. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, thank you for the wisdom of your word. And thank you that you are the sovereign Lord over history and over our lives and over this class. And now, oh Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we think about what might be kind of an obscure idea, the forms of church government, but what is so important for um, the protection and the health and the stability of our churches. Guide us this day, we pray, in this, in this lesson. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> um, now, what is the meaning of husband of one wife? Because it says that an elder has to be the husband of one wife. I know of people 
who have been divorced and then have married someone else and said, well, I'm not the husband of one wife anymore. I've had two different wives, and so I can't be an elder. And in fact, I knew a very godly person one time who said, well, my first wife died. And now I've married again, and so I can't be an elder because I'm not the husband of one wife. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But that is the question. That's the question that comes up with what is the meaning of husband of one wife. My answer in that case is to say, friend, how many wives are you living with right now? One. Well, you're the husband of how many wives at the present time? One. Well, then you're the husband of one wife, right? So the question is, does it refer to present status or past life situation? I, I think what Paul is meaning here is that a polygamist cannot be an elder. And the reason is that all the other qualifications for elder refer to a man's present status, not his entire past life. Look at these things. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now listen to this. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, are we going to say that past history in your life on these things disqualifies someone? Must not be a drunkard. What if you got a candidate for elder and said, you know, I, I, I drank a lot in, in college. I, I got drunk a lot, but then I became a believer and it's passed. And it's been 30 years. Well, I think he meets the qualification. Don't you think he meets the qualification? See, it means presently not a drunkard. How about arrogant? Whoa. <laughs> I bet I... It'd be fun to have known some of you in high school or college. <laughs> it means present status, doesn't it? Not violent or greedy for gain. So he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Well, someone might say, you know, I, I didn't even believe the Bible before. And even, you know, even... Someone might say, well, when I was first a Christian, I was arrogant, but the Lord changed me a year or two later. Or, you know, sometimes the, the, the sanctification process takes some time. So I think there has to be a period of time. There has to be a pattern of behavior over time. But I don't think it refers to your entire past life. And so I think husband of one wife refers to present status not his entire past life. There's a technical argument that I have in chapter 47 of Systematic Theology that Paul could have said, there's a, Greek, there's a way in Greek of saying, having been married only once, using a perfect tense verb, or having been married only once, it should say. But he did not. He said, just husband of one wife. And then the third thing is, it doesn't make any sense to me at all to say, that a remarried widower could be an elder. If someone's wife has died, and then he's remarried, I mean, that doesn't 
That surely shouldn't prevent someone from being an elder. So I think it's present status. Now, does that mean that someone who, who, who just botched up his marriage and had significant contributing cause to his divorce and it's, and it's been fairly recent and that that person should be known? No, I'm not saying that. I think every person should be, the situation should be evaluating in, uh, in each case individually. But I'm saying it doesn't mean never having been married to anybody else. Are, are you with me on this? Do you want to ask questions on this? Because, uh, yeah, uh, Mike. Again, I've struggled with this a little bit. One of my understandings was that polygamy was actually outlawed in the Roman Empire by Augustus Caesar. And so it's been frequently suggested, well, this was referring to just polygamy. And that caused me some concern because that was already known to be outlawed yep. in, in most of the community. Yep. In which case, it, you know, it, it feels awkward to be suggesting that yep. this is just referring to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the specific uh, decree of Caesar Augustus or whatever, um, but I do know that in general, the Roman Empire just partly by virtue of necessity and distance and partly by virtue of wisdom and governance, allowed considerable freedom for the, gov the various nations and people groups that they governed. And as far as the Jewish people is concerned, in the Jewish writings after the Old Testament, including some that are into the New Testament and afterward, the Mishnah and the Talmud, there are long discussions of how you treat your second wife, how you treat your third wife, how you treat your fourth wife. And there's an entire section of the Jewish Mishnah that's, that, that talks about the inheritance rights for the children of your first wife, your second wife, your third wife. And this is presently first wife, second wife, and third wife. So, yeah, among the Jews, it was more common than among Greeks and Romans at that time. There is some evidence of, uh, at least among uh, royalty with Greeks and Romans too, but not as prevalent. But yeah, it definitely was possible among the Jewish people. So, yeah, thanks. And the, the, do, the documentation for that is in chapter 47 of my systematic theology book in a footnote. So, yeah, anything else on husband of one wife? What's your name here? Larry. If your wife had left you, yep. and say several years later you remarried, yep. could you be an elder? Yeah. I think that the people nominating elders should evaluate individual cases and and if a, if a, if you know John Doe's name comes up then they should say well John come and talk to us and let us find out about that and probably it would be good to talk to his former wife too just to get two sides and, and would you mind if we talk to her and just and then others who were involved perhaps and just so that because what the church wants to do is have officers who whose lives are models to imitate. And um, you, you don't want details of a, of a really poorly managed marriage or poorly handled situation to come out later. So, yeah. Okay, husband of one wife. Okay, deacon. What about deacon? I'm going to go quickly over this. It's, there aren't as many verses, but there are some. Uh, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul talks about uh, the saints at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, or the overseers and deacons, rather. And uh, this is the word in Greek that's kind of like our English word deacon. It's called diakonos, and some places it's just translated servant. Like in Romans 13.4, it says the civil uh, ruler is God's servant for your good. That's the same word, diakonos. 
And um, so, First um, Timothy 3, deacons likewise must be dignified. I mean, I'm going to read through this, but the, the, thi the two things that are lacking from the qualifications for deacons are governing and teaching ability for the church. It looks like that's reserved for elders. But deacons do other things, kind of administrative functions of various sorts in the church. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, <coughs> not greedy for dishonest gain. I mean, that might hint at the fact that they have some financial management responsibilities in the church. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households, own households well. Uh, those who serve well as deacons gain good setting for themselves. Um, so um, this is some other kinds of administrative responsibility in the church. Now, to be fair, I have to say to you, some people argue that their wives likewise should be translated the women likewise or the women deacons likewise. And there, you can argue it endlessly both ways in the Greek text. And um, uh, I, think this is the, I think this is talking about the qualifications of wives of deacons. They shouldn't be slanderers because the deacons are going to be dealing with a lot of things in the church and caring for a lot of people and their wives are going to know about it and they shouldn't have wives that are talking about it. But um, just to be fair, different churches differ on that. And um, um, anyway, possible functions of deacons. <clears throat> Perhaps some responsibility in caring for finances, not greedy for gain. Perhaps some administrative responsibilities because they have to prove themselves in managing their own households first. Likely they were involved in some house-to-house -house visitation and counseling because their wives are not to be slanderers. But these aren't absolutely certain conclusions. These are, hmm, this might be true because look at, look at what, how they are to be qualified. And then Acts 6 indicates they may also have ministered to the physical needs of those in the church or community who needed help. Now in Acts 6, the apostles said it, it, it shouldn't, we shouldn't give up uh, the preaching of the word of God uh, to... Uh, wait on tables or care for or serve tables that is they were in the distribution of food to those who are needy let me read the exact passage here it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men good of full good of good repute full of the spirit and wisdom who so there's a spiritual qualification whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word so um now the verb to, to diakoneo, to minister, to serve, is used here. The, de the noun deacon is not used. So people argue, is it deacons or not? At least it's something very like deacons. It's people with administrative responsibilities of some sort within the church. <clears throat> oh, huh. I just read that to you. But I had forgotten that I had it on the PowerPoint. Anyway, that's, that's the whole passage in Acts 6, 1 to 6. And so uh, there was distribution of food to, to um, widows who, who uh, didn't have a means of support. And the apostles said, let's appoint others to do that. Um, well, uh, so what do I say about deacons? I don't want to get into a huge controversy. I think there's quite a range of variety of positions within the church under the governance of the elder board, administrative positions of various sort that kind of fit this qualification of deacon. 
the church treasurer, uh, the Christian ed uh, director, the um, um, uh, other kinds of administrative responsibility things, uh, director of facilities for the, for the church, and other kinds of things like that, ministry of mercy, director of counseling ministry. They're not elders. They're not governing or teaching the whole church, but they have administrative responsibility with other categories within the church. And I think that that's kind of a rough equivalent to the New Testament office of deacon, approximately. But we don't have deacons at, elder, at Scottsdale Bible Church. But we've got a lot of people. We've got probably hundreds of people who have some kind of administrative authority under the elder board. So they're kind of like that. And, and I... <clears throat> oh, uh, do you want to ask more about deacons? Yeah. Okay, see, there's the problem. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> that, let's get that on the tape, Diane. Do you then, in order to be an elder or a deacon, need to be married with children? Okay. And be the husband of one wife? Yeah. Um, okay, so here, I'm going to just tell you honestly what I think. I think the office of elder is well-defined, it's clear, I think it's limited to men, and it governs and, and has teaching authority to, govern the, to protect the teaching of the whole church. I think deacon is a kind of a broad or loose category, looser category. There were some cases where it was, you know, there were, there were qualifications here, but I, um, but there, might, there are a lot of administrative responsibilities within the church that I don't think are elder, and you may not want to call them deacon, but I think would be open to women as well as men, I think they'd be open to single women and single men as well as married women and married men. So, and the reason is, if you don't call them deacon, but you say there are a lot of different responsibilities that people have, then those are open to everybody. The problem with deacon is it gets really controversial, and the Presbyterian Church in America, the conservative Presbyterian group right now, is embroiled in a huge controversy over whether women can be deacons. And in Baptist churches, often deacons are like elders, so if you have a woman deacon, it's like a woman elder, and so... It's controversial, and the, the word is a little... I'm not sure what I want to do about the word, but, but I want to go on to the next point then. There, uh, the treasurer, the moderator, the trustees, the paid staff for music, education, youth director, they are publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility for having certain functions in the church. It, it's not as crucial to me whether they're called deacons or not. Um who are called deacons probably should meet the qualifications for deacons because you want the Bible verses to match the people. But then that sets a pattern that under the governing of the elders, there's room for a lot of different kinds of responsibility, whether you call it deacon or not. Am, am I making any sense at all? Mike, am I, what? Am I? I think you're, you're pointing out the challenge. We've got to go one way or the other in churches. Where kind yeah, of yeah. Wavering back and forth. Yeah, okay. Go ahead and put that on the... I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you're pointing out the challenge in a lot of the Protestant churches because yeah. it's uncertain which way to go on yeah. that and make it a specific office yeah. or yeah. view it as a general servanthood, yeah. and, and you're just demonstrating that that's yeah. okay. equivocal. And so at Scottsdale Bible Church, <laughs> we don't have any deacons. And so we have all sorts of offices and responsibilities for hundreds of people, and I'm happy with that. Um, would it be good to have some deacons? I, I, I'm not going to go there. I don't know. Daryl? How about worship leaders? Yeah, I would say that's see, what, like uh, what uh, Joe Bubar does on Sunday morning. That's a deacon-like responsibility. But, you know, oh, I'm just saying I'm not sure what churches should do about deacons, but I'm saying 
that gives a principle that under the elders, there's room for a lot of different delegation of responsibility. Are, are we happy with Are we okay with that, Shirley? Uh, yes, she's happy. Okay. So when they have deacons, it's more of a hierarchical structure than, okay. than our structure? Thank you, Shirley. That gives me the opportunity to go on to various chi- types of church government. <laughs> I've, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got some diagrams on church government. So let's go on. How should church officers be chosen? There are two uh, major processes. First, you can select a, a, a officers by higher authority. In the Roman Catholic Church, the bishops choose the local priests. In the Anglican or Episcopalian Church, the bishop assigns the priest to the church. And the Methodists came out of the Episcopal Church uh, with John Wesley, who was the Anglican Church of England, and he retained a, pretty much an Episcopalian form of church government. So the, if you've ever been a Methodist, who chooses your pastor? The, the, the bishop or the district, uh, you know, whoever's the leader. Then there's another choice, and that is that the local congregation chooses um, the church officers, and that's what we do here at Scottsdale Bible Church and most Protestants. Now, that leads to a question. Uh-oh, I am, hmm, I took too many questions. Well, we've got 20 minutes left. Let's push on and see what we can do. Here is my argument for why church officers should be affirmed or recognized by a local congregation, I think chosen by a local congregation. Number one, there are several examples in the New Testament where church officers were apparently chosen by the whole congregation. Acts 123, even even, um, uh, the selection of the new apostle, it was ultimately carried out by the Lord Jesus through the casting of lots in his direction. But, but the, the, the congregation put forward uh, Joseph and or, uh, Justice and Matthias, uh, and, um, and then, then the Lord selected. So that was 120 persons who kind of said, we recognize these people. Acts 6.3, for those early <clears throat> deacons or distributors of food, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So there was surely congregational selection. And um, Acts 15, 22, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them. These are delegates to give the decision of the Jerusalem council. And uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 19, the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, uh, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, 19, not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. So it seems like uh, the churches had a role there. And then didn't Paul and Barnabas appoint elders, Acts 14, 23, and Titus 1, 5 as well? There may have been congregational consultation or consent, and, and I, I think that's probably what happened. So um, here you've got brand new churches. Did all the people vote? No, probably not. But you know what? I imagine Paul and Barnabas talked to the people and said, you know, who do you think would be a good elder? Who do you think would be a good elder? Who do you? And they kind of got the consensus of who had... Uh, a reputation for godliness and devotion to the Lord among the people and had people's respect. Um, in a church planting situation, that, that might be a wise situation where you have very new or immature Christians and you get it going somehow. But in general, it seems to me that uh, congregational affirmation or um, ultimately selection would be good. Number two, the final governing authority in the New Testament seems to rest not with any group outside the church or any group within the church, but with the church as a whole. So if you have to choose who has all the power in the church to ultimately decide things, it looks like <clears throat> it's the whole church. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to, his Gentiles, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So excommunication from the church is done by the whole church. 
1 Corinthians 5, 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, then they are to carry out church discipline. And in fact, the epistles are all written to churches, not to the elders. Even Philippians 1, 1 says to the overseers, to, to the saints at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So the, 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 the seems like the New Testament leaders are saying the church as a whole has the responsibility to obey these things. And if the entire congregation selects the officers of the church, there's more accountability to the congregation. Paul assumes some level of accountability in 1 Timothy 5.19. Um, and this provides an additional safeguard against temptations to sin and excessive lust for power. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there is accountability, and I think that's a good thing. But it isn't just one person making an accusation. But there is still an assumption that there will be accountability. And, and I think if, people, if someone's put in place by the bishop, like an Episcopalian priest or a Roman Catholic priest, they may be good people, but there's not as much accountability to the people um, as if it's the whole congregation. Fourth, historically, it seems to me, you can disagree with me if you want, it seems to me when denominations and churches go liberal or go into bad doctrine, false doctrine seems to be adopted by the theologians of the church first, by pastors second, and by the informed laity, those daily reading their Bibles and walking with the Lord, last. Is that right? You see, what, well, one great example of that was 20, 25 years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention. You'd see these surveys. How many Southern Baptists believe in the virgin birth, believe Adam and Eve were literal people, believe the Bible is completely true, believe Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the great fish? 92% of the lay people in the Southern Baptist Church. 73% of the pastors. 52% of the professors. Something's wrong with that, right? What's happened? their academic status or attraction of unbelieving academic scholarship got the best of them. And I, I think historically that's often the case. So if I'm going to trust somebody, some group of people to have stewardship of the direction of a whole church, am I going to trust a nationwide governing body? Or am I going to trust the pastors of all the churches, or I'm going to trust the lay people who are members and are voting. If I've got to choose somebody, ultimately I'm going to trust you. If I start going astray and teaching bad doctrine in here, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to hear about it. And pretty soon the governing board of the church is going to hear about it. And pretty soon I'm going to be out because you, you may not be able to answer my Greek and Hebrew arguments, but you're going to say, in my, as I read my Bible, that's not what it says. And there's something wrong here. So there's an instinctive sense. So, so anyway, um, election of officers by the church provides a system of checks and balances. So that would be what I would favor. And then government works best when it has the consent of the governed. Um, um, I'm going to go past that. Summary. Scripture does not explicitly command one specific system of choosing church officers, but it seems to me wise for the entire church have a role in the selection and recognition of the officers of the church. And that's what happens at Scottsdale Bible Church. Now look, you say, wait a minute, we've got thousands of people here. We come out of the church on Sunday morning, there's this ballot, and you just vote to affirm these people. I don't even know these people. Isn't the nominating committee and the elder board making all decisions for us? Right now, everything's going smoothly. Yes, it works fine. But it's very important that we preserve that process. Why? 
Well, if the uh, uh, board makes a mistake, you would want the congregation to point that out. Yeah. If the board, if the nominating committee or the elder board makes a mistake and nominates somebody that shouldn't, or what's the, the elder board itself starts to go astray and they just nominate people who are their own friends, there should be, there is a way to nominate people from the floor and there is, that ballot protects the right for you, Jerry, to start talking around the class here and say, wait a minute, there's somebody wrong here we shouldn't vote for or we should put somebody else in place so that ultimately you could get hold of the mechanism and eject the people who go bad. And I think the ability to do that has to be there, even though it's hard sometimes, it's, it at least is there. Are you following me with that? So that's why that process of voting is very important. Very, very important. Um, Bob. Yes, with the purchase of the land. Oh, the congregation. The congregation voted it down. <laughs> where, sorry. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> yep. And the elders reconsidered. Well, I think that's good. That's a healthy church. Okay, good. Okay, now, we've got 10 minutes left. Should we try to do this? Different forms of church government. <clears throat> just, kind of, just to kind of get a lay of the land. There are three main forms. One's called Episcopalian, and, and the Catholics and the Episcopalians and the Methodists have that form. One's called Presbyterian, and the Presbyterians and the Christian Reformed have that. And then one is called Congregational, and we have that. Here's what Episcopalian looks like. There's an archbishop. We have, uh, for in England, for instance, we have the Archbishop of Canterbury. But there are archbishops in the United States, I believe, as well. Yes, there are. Okay, thank you. And then under them are the bishops, and the bishops appoint the pastor in a local church who is called the rector. And his assistant is called the vicar, and in some kinds of situations, the pastor is called a vicar or an assistant rector. And then under the rector is the congregation. This whole, the, the pastor and the congregation together, or the rector and the congregation in the Episcopal system are called the diocese. Oh, no, wait a minute. The diocese is the, the group the, under a bishop in a region. And Margaret and I have a good friend, Wallace Ben, who's over a over hundred churches in England. He's a bishop and a very conservative, godly man. Um, no, you know what? You can read this in my book. Arguments for and against. Basically, the arguments are that it grew up historically and it works. And my argument back is, well, it looks like doesn't follow the New Testament pattern of plural elders. So we go on. Okay, the next one is Presbyterian. And um, as I've mentioned, my son Elliot is in a Presbyterian church, a very conservative Bible-believing church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he is an elder in that church. He's the pastor of that church. Now here, here's the deal. There's some congregational involvement with Presbyterians because the congregational elects the elders, E, 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 E. And those elders together are called the session. So <clears throat> the pastor uh, in a Presbyterian church would have a session meeting. He's meeting with his elders. Session means sitting. Session, and so the session is the elders are sitting together to meet. The people from the elder board then become members of the regional presbytery. And Presbytery is a regional group of elders, and then they send members, delegates, to the General Assembly, which is a national group. The argument in favor of this is, you know, if these people are wise and mature, shouldn't they have authority over a number of churches? Shouldn't the Presbytery, is there a, is there a Presbytery of Phoenix? I don't know. But there, there be either an Arizona Presbytery or something like that. So 
shouldn't the wise elders have authority over all their churches in the presbytery? And my argument against that is there's nobody, no example in the New Testament where elders have authority over a church they don't belong to. So, so I don't go with a Presbyterian church, but, you know, it can work pretty well, too. There's support, there's objections, we go on. Now, the last kind is, because I'm, I'm just determined to get done with this today. The last kind is congregational. And there are five types of congregational church government. One is the single pastor. The congregation chooses him, but then he has authority over the deacon board and the congregation. That's common among a lot of Baptist churches and among a lot of independent churches. Um, how many of you have been in that kind of church where the pastor is the, is the real thing? Okay, you know what that is. There's another alternative to that, and that is the pastor works really closely with the deacons, and they really function like an elder board because the pastor is just kind of meets with the deacons. He always seeks their consent, and, and, and that's closer to a plural elder form, but they don't call them elders. And my objection to that is they're not matching the biblical word elder and verses on elders with the actual elder responsibility. There's another form called plural local elders, and that is the congregation elects elders, and they govern the church. Do you know of an example of a church like that? Oh, yes, Scottsdale Bible Church. That would be an example of this. We elect elders. The only little tweaking of this, little difference of this, is that in Scottsdale Bible Church, as it was set up a long time ago, the pastor is not among the elders. <clears throat> the pastor meets with the elders, but he's not counted an elder. I differ a little bit with that, but nobody asked me because I wasn't even here. I don't know if I was even born. <laughs> I guess I was born. So, uh, but in fact, uh, when I was on the elder board and Daryl was on the elder board, Daryl worked very closely with the elders, and even though he didn't have a vote, he was like functioning very similar to an elder. They respected his opinion. Um, I think in all these cases, there should be limits on elders' authority. I think they should be elected rather than self-perpetuating. If we didn't have that vote coming out of the church when there's an election on Sunday morning, you didn't have to fill out that ballot, the elders would be self-perpetuating. They'd choose their own successors. And you can get a rotten apple in and then two rotten apples in and then ten rotten apples and the church is lost. So I, I think there's a safeguard there. And I think elders should have a specific term with a mandatory year off. I had a friend who went to a church where they had 70 lifetime elders. Oh. So um, he managed to survive, but, uh, but, you know, that's a different animal. Um, and so, uh, so Scottsdale Bible Church, we have... Four years? Four-year term. Four terms. And then a mandatory year off? Yeah. So um, then it gives a chance to have new, new input. And then some large decisions may be brought to the whole church, like budget, purchase of land, Bob, and election of elders. Okay. So I think that's good. Less common forms of government. Hey, we're going to get to the end here. All right. Here are some less common forms, but there's some. It's called a, a corporate board. It's like a modern congregation. The board of directors hires an executive officer who has authority to run the business as he sees fit, and uh, he's very much viewed as their employee and their subordinate. Now, some churches do that after a business model. I don't think that's the best form. Uh, it's really hard for the pastor to have the spiritual authority he should have. There's another one called pure democracy. 
I actually remember being in a church meeting where we spent, this was a church we were in a long time ago, we spent 40 minutes in the congregational meeting one night discussing what color a door should be painted. That shouldn't have come to the whole congregation, okay? I mean, it wasn't even the main door. It was just a side door. It was... <laughs> Um, and there's another one called No Government But the Holy Spirit. Uh, this means you just kind of, everybody's led by the Holy Spirit and who knows what's going to happen. Well, that's not so common either and that, you know, that's not too good. Conclusion. Here we are. The form of government adopted by a church is not a major point of doctrine. Look, I have, I have a son who's a Presbyterian pastor. I have many friends who are in Presbyterian churches and I don't, I'm not so happy with this governing authority over other churches, but it seems to work pretty well when there are good people there. And I have friends who are Episcopalian or Anglican bishops, both in England. Well, I don't know a bishop in the United States, but I know pastors or, or clergy, priests in the Episcopal Church. And they have Bible-believing churches where you go to them and you'd say, whoa, this, this feels like my own church. And so the different forms of government... And, and, I, and I, just last month, in a pastor was the only elder church in, in Alabama. And when there are good people in office, a lot of different forms can work. That's the point. I, did I say that? But a church can be more or less pure, but with good people in place, various systems can work well. But government faithful to the New Testament pattern protects the church from going astray over time and protects it in times of difficulty and conflict. And where there's controversy, the form of church government can become extremely important and can often be the decisive factor in determining the future of that church. I have watched before my very eyes uh, a movement, a couple of movements that I am aware of, but I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular. Margaret and I were in a vineyard church for a number of years, and we liked it, and it was Bible-believing. But the vineyard is a self-perpetuating national governing board. And I'm, I'm very concerned about some of the directions they're going, but nobody in any of the churches can do anything about it because they, they can't change the national governing board. And so the form of church government that you set up is really important when times get hard. Questions or comments? Are you... I wish I could talk more about this, but probably it's enough for one day. Are we all right? Yeah, Bob? Uh, Mike? Yeah. Okay, good. Go ahead. And how Say, put it on the tape. Yeah, there was, was church councils, of course, in the book of Acts, Acts 15. Yep. And there was evidence then where the bishops would get together in yep. history. So yep. there was a recognition that multiple congregations yep. had to come together in their governments occasionally. Yep, yep. You can okay, speak about that point, later. Good point. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, 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 it can happen when you've got one worldwide church government and the pope or the, or the emperor, like Constantine, can call a church council. Um, but we don't have that anymore today. So is there an equivalent? There is an equivalent where doctrinal matters get worked out by church leaders from different denominations coming together to say, let's put out a policy statement on this, and eventually people kind of come along. But it's, it's messier and not as decisive. That's true. But the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978 met in Chicago and put up a document that gained widespread assent through the whole church by voluntary affirmation. It was kind of like that. Not exactly the same. But without a worldwide church government, I don't know if you can do that except it voluntarily. Are we okay on this? Was that... Did you follow? Too fast? No? We're okay? 
I like the form of church government we have here, mostly. Okay, let's, oh, Gene, last one, then we're going to sing. Just following up on the Acts 15, so they did pronounce four things, uh, decisions of that council, and uh, what was the effect? Was there any authority in that, or were those yeah. just suggestions? No, Gene, you're right. I mean, with the apostles there in Jerusalem, that's like, that has the, that has the authority of Scripture. But I think it was unique because the apostles were living and breathing and had that.